Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. A couple things I want to talk to Sabrina Nanji. She's the publisher of the Queen's Park Observer. Uh, talk to her about, and I want to welcome her in. Sabrina, thanks for doing this today. Thanks for having me, Scott. I want to get into, first of all, this story that uh, the Toronto Star had today. Doug Ford takes aim at Ontario school boards over indoctrinating students on gender identity and the idea that parents should be told about stuff to do with their kids, including if they decide that they are going to identify as a different gender or whatever else. There, there was a poll by Angus Reid that was, I believe, two weeks ago, three weeks ago, that said 78% of Canadians agree with this idea. So is there any real risk for Doug Ford in taking this position, or is this just a political no-brainer that you, you stand? And I, I think he probably agrees with it anyway, but is it a no-brainer that you go this way? Yeah, I mean, it does seem like it's um, something that, that Ford personally would agree with. But I think, you know, just to take a grain of salt with with all polls, especially on an issue like this. I mean, when you sort of frame the question to parents as, do you want to be informed something related to your child? Of course, they're going to say yes. But if Ford in particular was looking for, you know, a channel changer for his growing greenbelt headache, I think he certainly found it um, at Ford Fest in, in Kitchener, where a by-election looms, which is where he sort of, um, you know, voiced his support, as you mentioned. And, and he got a big round of applause for that. Uh, and, and of course, you know, he was speaking to his base. He was speaking to his supporters. Um, but it also comes after Education Minister Stephen Lecce said pretty much the same thing and has said that's the government's position. I mean, Lecce, uh, you know, to his credit, prefaced his comment saying that teachers are trained to look for signs that a student might be susceptible to abuse um, if they, you know, if they come out to their parents or if their parents found out they wanted to go by a different uh, gender pronoun. But I think that, um, you know, where it gets tricky certainly is, is whether Ontario is going to actually draft a policy on this. As we've seen, you know, other provinces do the same and they get bogged down, um, in legalities. Mm. Do you, do we know at this point what the NDP and the liberals position is on this? I, I mean, it, it, politics is such that if the Tories say we are for X, then usually you're going to be for Y just because it's politics. But is that the official position or do we know yet from the opposition parties? Yeah, that's actually a great question because I think this issue is so nuanced and it's really telling in the responses, I guess, or lack thereof from the opposition critics. I mean, um, you know, the, the, the it's sort of the, the Monday morning after Ford said this, the parties are just accusing Doug Ford and the Conservatives of looking to, you know, change the channel on the Greenbelt saga that's going on right now. But Certainly, we haven't seen um, the NDP or the Liberals really come out on this policy itself that we're discussing right now in in like, you know, unequivocal terms here. I mean, it's been really tricky with the Liberals, too, because, as you know, they're going through a leadership contest right now. And I've been hearing from grassroots members uh, who have been privately and also publicly saying that, you know, they're they're really disappointed that the leaders haven't really come out with a policy on this. And that sort of, you know, forced some statements from Bonnie Crombie, from Ted Shu. But I think everyone is trying to walk a very fine line here because don't forget, I mean, this has to do with a very small number of the population. I mean, 0.3% of Canadians over 15 I'm, identify as transgender. And so, well, I'm not saying it's not important. I do feel that at 
this has kind of been blown up out of proportion and a lot of people are seeing it as um, a dog whistle. Well, and there's one other thing about this is that this is a, you know, there's political correctness, but I just, I really wonder if when you start getting into parental rights and what parents should do and whether the government is better suited than parents to make these decisions, some people may say, oh no, I think teachers will, I wonder if a lot of people, they may be scared to say much out loud because of, you know, where it might go, but may look at that and go, yeah, don't, don't get into this. Just don't even get into me parenting. I, I, I really believe it's a murky area if another party was to take a strong stand and say, oh, we're all for the opposite position. Yeah, I, I think you're right about that. I mean, when it comes to kids, obviously parents want to know as much as they can. And I have seen one argument out there, you know, um, it's a privilege to know what gender, uh, how your tweet. child identifies and what gender they identify with, um, you know, not a right. But if I think back to when I was a teenager, like I had good loving parents, um, you know, I was a relatively good kid and I still kept secrets for my parents. So, you know, good parents or bad parents, I think um, there. this is like, a very fine line to walk here. I mean, the best parents don't know everything about their their teenagers. And so this is where I think it gets tricky, especially for the government. They have not said they're going to draft a mandate, draft a policy for schools. I think Lecce um, had said that he agreed with parents and he's looking at polling. Certainly the government's doing its own polling on this. He's hearing these anecdotal stories. But I think that's sort of where it gets tricky is when you try and put this into a policy and then you put it on um, teachers and take it away. Because, you know, if we look to New Brunswick, I mean, what's going to happen if, God forbid, you know, a a child is harmed or a child is hurt? And and I think that's what Lecce's point is. So I think definitely we can talk about it. But I think when it comes to drafting a policy, that's sort of where it gets tricky. And we certainly have seen that in other provinces, uh, because now these policies are going to go through the court system. And I saw that same tweet. We got to take a break here. I saw that same tweet that you're referring to about how it's a privilege to know your child's gender. I I would say though, and we were talking about this last hour on the, on a previous show that there are parents who also have exceedingly high academic expectations of their kids and may be furious if their child was not to do as well as they expected. And so should they not know if the child's grades are low, should teachers prevent them from knowing so their child isn't in trouble at home? I mean, you start to get into a really murky area of if we think a parent could be somehow harmful, what else do we keep hidden? And if that becomes a real quagmire. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I think that teachers um, inherently know that it's part of their training um, and not like the onus is completely on them to know when a, a child uh, could possibly face abuse at home or be unsafe in their home situation. But they know better than, you know, most folks that children are interacting with um, when to look out for these signs. And so I think that that's kind of the important um, factor in all of this, because where where is the line, mm. as you say? Sabrina, I'm going to uh, throw you a bit of a curveball here. This is not what we were going to talk about, but I know you'll be you'll be able to answer this. Um, we had here in Hamilton uh, a couple of weeks ago a counselor who asked the city to come up with new revenue sources to see if they can find if staff can find new revenue sources. And one of the things that immediately came to mind was what Olivia Chow has asked for, which is a municipal sales tax. Now, this is something that the provincial government would have to allow them to do 
But if Olivia Chow and Toronto were to get the permission to have a municipal sales tax, I bet there's 10 cities around this province who would be lining up to do the same thing. Do you, could you ever see Doug Ford giving the go ahead for one of those things? It's a big if. Um, and yeah, I, I had asked um, some senior Tories in the government um, just casually, you know, what does the premier think about this when Chow had had proposed it? And um, I got a, a text back that said hard pass and not much. And of course, you know, things can change. Um, but I, I really don't see this being, you know, part of Doug Ford's MO. I mean, he had he's not a fan of raising taxes. Um, he had sort of railed against the previous liberal government's uh, cap and trade program, calling that a carbon tax. It wasn't necessarily that, but that's what he was vilified. And I mean, it, it helped him get elected, but that's really not his his branding. And of course, he would wear that. I mean, especially a time now when the public is pinching pennies, you know, everyone's feeling the strain on their wallets. I think taxes is, um, you know, further taxes is going to be like a big hurt for a lot of people. And Doug Ford would wear that absolutely politically speaking. And he does definitely does not want to be punished for it. Um, so I, I guess you never know never say never, but I, I don't think he's going to approve that for Olivia Chow, but um, I do think there are other levers and certainly, you know, Toronto does have some leverage uh, to put pressure on the premier. I'm thinking just about what's happening with our waterfront in Ontario place. Mm. Uh, but, but, you know, I think also Ford has also turned down Olivia Chow when it comes to highway tolls and that sort of thing, but municipalities are creatures of the province. And so I think Hamilton is going to have to do what Toronto is going to have to do and get a little bit more creative because I completely understand cities are cash strapped and, a lot of that, you know, falls on the higher levels of government because municipalities are creatures of the province. I am interested, though, that you say that he would wear that if he allowed it, because I, I wondered that very question. I'm glad you <laughs> answered it before I even asked. But I thought, I wonder if this is a a way to deflect any kind of criticism. Hey, you know what? We let them do what they want, and they're the ones who are nailing you with another tax. I, I wondered, as opposed to the the cities simply coming to the province and saying, give us more money. Yeah, I mean, obviously, give us more money hasn't really been successful, especially for Toronto either. Um, but I, I think that, you know, Olivia Chow would at least politically want to play nice. I think same with Hamilton. I mean, we have seen just, you know, this complete difference with Andrea Horvath and and Doug Ford and their relationship now that uh, she's she's been at City Hall. So I, I think that they will want to play nice. Um, I, I just really don't see Doug Ford doing this because, of course, you know, I, I I think people are aware that the province is going to is going to have to approve this or not. Um, and at the end of the day, I think the public kind of has a bit of a tricky time sometimes like um, differentiating jurisdiction. I know that housing is top of mind for a lot of folks right now. And we've seen that a lot of people are pinning that on Justin Trudeau when housing tends to be. Uh, you know, in the wheelhouse of the province, at least, you know, for the most part, obviously, every level of government has a part to play here. But I think it's interesting. And also, you know, uh, an election 2026 is not that far away. So if people are feeling the pinch from higher taxes, they might look to Doug Ford as the first person that mm. they could potentially punish for this. Uh, one more thing, since you brought it up, and it was another thing that uh, we've all, I think a lot of us have wondered, have you been surprised that with the Andrea Horvath, Doug Ford relationship as with her as mayor now, because there were a lot of questions when she was running and even when she won, 
how they would get along. It, it seems to be, uh, this may be the, a too kind of word, but almost collegial. Like it, it, it's not, I don't think what a lot of people thought it was going to be. Yeah, I mean, it's a complete 180 and what a difference um, a major election loss for the NDP makes um, and, you know, a a change in office. I mean, they're both singing each other's praises. uh, And it's interesting also because Stephen Del Duca, the former liberal leader and now Mayor of Vaughan, is kind of going through the uh, renewed bromance with with Doug Ford, too. But as I said, municipalities are creatures of the province and Doug Ford holds a lo- holds a lot of strings here for a lot of cash strapped and struggling cities. And so I think it's not really that surprising. I mean, politics is, you know, it's a game you play. And of course, at the city level, there's no real official partisan politics. Um, and obviously, the NDP and the liberals have their their new leaders or interim leaders, soon to be leaders that are, you know, going to battle it out with Doug Ford. Um, I, I think it's not surprising, but it's definitely weird. It's like watching a dog walk on its hind legs or something unnatural after all these years of watching Andrea Horvath um, and, and take Doug Ford to task in question period. Well, I don't well know said. I'll get used no, to it. It, it. Well said, because it, it has been, I don't know what we expected, but it has definitely been not, I don't think what a lot of people, I think a lot of people thought maybe they would get along or they wouldn't be at each other all the time, but it's you're right. And Del Duca is another great example. It's, it's funny when you change that position, how things change as well. Uh, Sabrina Nenji, publisher of the Queens Park Observer. Always love having you on. Thanks for taking time tonight. Thanks for having me. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. I wonder how many loyalty programs you belong to. I, I, I have Aeroplan. I know my wife has <laughs> too many to count. I, I don't know all the businesses, all the stores that she gets points at groceries. We do, you know, that's, that's, it's a good thing. It's a, I think it's a smart thing to be part of these programs. They seem to work for the consumer, I think, but there are changes and tweaks and everything coming with them. I want to bring in Bruce Winder, retail analyst and author joins us now. Bruce, how are you today? Yeah, I'm doing really well. Thanks for having me on the program. Hey, I always love having you on here. And it, just before we get into these these changes that are happening, these do seem like they work, right? I mean, not just for the customer, because obviously if anytime you get free stuff, that seems like a good thing. But the, it, it seems as though it does bring people back to the store again and again, which is what the companies want, right? Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, there's been a lot of studies done, but I remember one study that was done, I think it was by McKinsey a few years ago, showed that about 60 to 65% of consumers will change where they shop to try to maximize points. So, you know, if they're driving by one store, they're going to keep driving until they find a store that offers them points that they're in a program on and they're going to convert there. So they do work. That's, that's the people who do this. I, I do wonder, and maybe you have some numbers, I do wonder how many people bother. Because I think once you sign up and get going and start to see points and maybe can use them for something, you say, oh, this is pretty good. But I wonder if, for a lot of people, it's like, oh, I don't know if I'm going to get anything. It's kind of just a pain. I'm not, And all they're going to do is get my address, and I don't want them to have that. I wonder how many people are reluctant. Yeah, there probably is some people. I mean, the average, my data that I've read shows the average Canadian's in about 12 programs. Really? And uh, 12 points programs, yeah. And there's about $15, $16 billion of unused points just sitting around out there. So it's a very fragmented industry, right? It seems... You know, about 20 years ago, everyone sort of used, you know, air miles and some of those big, big uh, 
uh, places. But then, you know, everyone started developing their own uh, points program. Now it seems we're, we're making a bit of a U-turn and people are, companies are starting to join, the, join these coalitions again. Right. So that is, that. that's where things are going a little bit different here. So I'm reading some stories about companies that have nothing to do with other companies, but they're now giving their points. You explain what it is, because it seems like we're we're combining forces here to try and get into a points program where we don't necessarily have a points program, but we'll give you points. Yeah, it's one of those things where, you know, for loyalty to work, you really need a few people to be part, a few companies to be part of the circuit, right? So if you look at what's happening with uh, Scene Plus, they've grown. Sobeys joined them uh, a year or two ago. They bought part of the company. And then you had Home Hardware announcing last week that they've joined, right? So, and then you have all the uh, rest, you know, restaurants unlimited, brands unlimited, which is all the Swiss chalets and Harveys and folks. So you kind of need a number of partners so that you can earn a lot actively every week, and then you can spend a lot actively every week too. And the problem is when people sort of go on their own and have their own program, you know, you kind of break that, you kind of slow that down. It may take you a long time to earn. And then it may take you a long time to spend it. So you kind of lose the momentum of loyalty. And that's why I think we're seeing more people sort of uh, look to the uh, the larger networked programs, coalitions, like Scene Plus versus, you know, these standalone uh, points places. Bruce, this may be a dumb question, but you just mentioned the fact that there was, what, $16 billion in unused points. Do people actually yeah. spend them? Do, they th- do people even think to spend them or you just collect them and then think, I'll spend it one day and they don't get spent? It's a bit of both, but you know what? With $16 billion, there's a lot of people out there who have all these points sitting on 12 different cards or 12 different programs, and you know what? It's just sitting there, and they're not using it. And it sounds like that could be a win for the companies, but it's not because those customers aren't really engaged in a loyalty program. They're sort of watching from the sidelines. They're intermittent. You know, they were engaged, now they're not, and that doesn't help the company. So are there then groups or companies that are are there, are there programs out there that are only, they're not connected to a company by direct connection, but they are just loyalty programs and looking for companies to buy in? Yeah, I'm not really sure about that. I'm not sure. I mean, the big three in Canada are PC Express, right, which is Loblaws and Shoppers Drug Mart. And then uh, Scene Plus has about, I think PC Express has about 16 million members. Scene Plus has 13 million. Then you have Air Miles that's like, eight or nine million. And then, it, you know, kind of goes down from there. You've got Aeroplan, you've got a few. And then you've got some other places like, you know, Canadian Tire Triangle, which is all of their program, all of their stores together, right? So there, there's so many different, you know, loyalty programs. It's really hard to keep track of them. You just, you just threw me when you talked about that, how many points are sitting there. And I don't know how much money that's worth. Uh, did you say 16 million points or 16 billion, sorry, 16 billion points or 16 billion dollars that are unused? No, I've heard it's 16 billion dollars, 15 to 16 billion dollars worth of points that are just kind of sitting around. There's an awful lot of companies that better hope people don't wake up and decide to cash their points. Yeah. And and you know what? It's just so much out there, but to them, you know what? It seems like that's a win for them, but it's actually, um, it's actually a bad thing. Because if people aren't earning and burning the points with your company, your loyalty program's broken. And that's a real sign that there's a lot of broken loyalty programs out there. Yeah, but let's say, I mean, I don't know, pick your pick your program. Let's say all of a sudden one of them has a billion dollars in unused points out there. <laughs> and yeah. half of those people even all of a sudden are reminded and they say, I'm going to go and do this. That, that company is going to be screwed. 
Well, it's going to be a weird hiccup if everyone went at the same time. I mean, that's what happened with Air Miles a few years ago. Air Miles announced about 10 years ago, 15 years ago, that they were forcing consumers to use their points uh, or else they, they expire. And there was a massive uh, uproar. And, you know, that's part of the reason why Air Miles now is in really bad shape. They were bought by BMO, but, you know, they lost a lot of market share because of that. So, you know, there's a, there's a lot of things that can happen, but c- companies, all things equal, want a nice, steady stream of continual earning and continual burning of the points just to keep the customer engaged with their brand. Uh, I, I'm not going to uh, say who it is I'm talking about, although it might be my wife, but I'm not going to say that out loud. <laughs> but I believe that she is probably reflective of a lot of people because I can tell you there have been times we've been at a store and we've been going to spend, I don't know, $40 and says, oh, well, you get 500 extra bonus points if you spend 50. So we better buy something extra for $10 just to get over the, the hump. Th- that, that seems like, again, a clear win for the companies like your program is working. Exactly. And my wife, and she wouldn't mind me saying this, my wife does the exact same thing. So she's always thinking about how to maximize her yes. point total, right? Yes. And spend that extra 10 or 20. So she's the queen of all that. And she's not the only one. There's a lot of people out there, male or female or whatever, that are living their lives that way. They're all about maximizing the points. It's almost like a game for them, right? So that's what companies love is when you have that kind of engagement in the program. Okay. So let me ask about the, so there's a lot of benefits that you could potentially get if you do this right. If you play the game right, you can get stuff, you can save money. However, I tend to be someone who doesn't like the idea of all my information going all over the place to places that I don't necessarily want it to go. If I become a member of one of these loyalty programs, is it a guarantee that they are data mining my stuff and there's information about me being sold all over the place to people I don't necessarily want to have that? No, I don't think so. I think those days are gone, and it really, but it really depends on who you're signing up with. So if you look at the Scene Plus program, you know, that's affiliated with Scotiabank, right, which is highly regulated. And th- those people are pretty uh, top-notch in terms of being really careful where your information goes. If you sign up with sort of, you know, a sketchy loyalty program, then you're right. They're probably going to sell your data, right? So you really have to stay with the big guns on this stuff, stay with the people who are affiliated with the big banks because they have greater controls on data. I, I do I do expect that this will grow. I mean, I think that this is what you're alluding to, that these companies, as they find partners now and bring other people in, uh, it's like anything else, isn't it? That the, the big companies just get bigger because of amalgamations and everything else. I mean, Disney, it's not a loyalty program, but Disney buys ESPN and buys ABC. I mean, all these companies, they sort of, the bigger ones keep getting bigger. Are we expecting that with the loyalty programs? I'm not really sure. I mean, there's been some consolidation, I would imagine. And, you know, uh, 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 Sobeys has bought part of the Scene Plus program, so you do see some activity there. It's hard to know, though, right? It all depends on, on, uh, you know, what's happening. But I would say the lion's share are, like I said, with those three companies, right? That's where most people have have their points. But, again, there's just so many little ones around. But it all depends on who gets traction, right? You know, if a loyalty company suddenly gets traction and they're doing really well, someone may may buy them or buy the company that owns the loyalty program, right? So a lot of this stuff happens. You look at Aeroplan. Aeroplan flip-flopped a few times over the years, right? Air Canada owned it, then it was sold to AMIA and then bought back by Aeroplan. So you never know by Air Canada, so you never know. Bruce Winder, retail analyst, author, uh, guy we love having on the program when we can get him. Bruce, thank you for doing this today. Hey, anytime. Take care. Have a great day. Bye-bye. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. It's been a while between covering other shows and summer and 
whatever else. Uh, it's been a while, but Don Robertson, owner of the Dundas Real McCoys of Com Choice Realty, uh, 2014 Dundas Citizen of the Year, and as we've said many, many times in the show, working on making it another one down the road. Um, how are you? I'm, I'm, I'm good. I'm good. You look taller. Do I? Yeah. I just thought it was better looking. Both. Yeah. Thank you. No, that's, I've been working hard at it. The, uh, <laughs> the stretching machine <laughs> has been in full effect and, uh, yeah, no, it's, uh, it's been a long, uh, it's been a long time. I can't believe uh, every time I go down to get Don to let him in at the front door here of the station, it's, uh, it's bright out today. It's almost, we're almost at yeah. the point where, yeah. It's going to be dark. I, the, I, I think I know what the answer to the you think so? uh, quiz question isn't. That damn thing. <laughs> yeah, that thing that I can't hit. <laughs> that thing that I can't hit or that uh, that I drill when I'm playing doubles, that I drill into my partner's head. <laughs> when I was in high school, I can't remember if it was high school or first year university, I was going out with this girl and we went to play squash one time. <laughs> and in squash, I mean, I think this is a rule. I'm not an expert, but I, I, I think you're allowed to hit the ball off the back wall if you're in a position and then bounce it to go off the front wall. <coughs> and so of course, you know, I, I'm out of position and I go to hit this thing off the back wall <laughs> to keep it going and drilled her right in the eye with, <laughs> and, um, yeah, it's, you know what, uh, the, uh, badminton birds or whatever else you call it, or squash balls or racket balls, whatever. I, I seem to have a bad habit of drilling people. So was that in an effort to make you look better? No, it was. If she uh, had one peeper, she'd. No, it was. It was. You want to have some unfortunate questions for the next few days? Is have your yeah. be around someone with a giant shiner? Yeah, and uh, you don't. You they don't expect people's automatic default position is. Oh, she must have been hit accidentally in the eye with a squash ball. No, that's not the first thing. You that's think not about. the first thing. You get. St- Stink eye, which I mean, and look, that's okay. Justifiably so. You don't want, you know, you want people to be not accepting of that bad behavior, but I didn't do anything like that. It was entirely an accident and it was not hands on, but nonetheless, it's, uh, so these, yes, I, I'm sure I could do great damage with a badminton bird <laughs> too, if, uh, if given the opportunity to do that. Uh, so much stuff going on right now. You know, we're, we're, the, the Blue Jays game is on in the studio right now and, I don't know how much of the Blue Jays you've watched this year. I have, I have, I love baseball. I have been, meh, about the, the Blue Jays have been, eh, this year to me. They just have not captured my attention. But the question that I have been thinking about for the last few days, longer than that even, is have we completely overestimated and overhyped and overrated <clears throat> Vladimir Guerrero Jr.? Because he doesn't look like he's one of the great stars in baseball. I watched a little bit of the game on the weekend, and uh, Dan Schulman asked Buck Martinez who the youngest player on the Blue Jays was. And Buck didn't know, but he guessed Schneider. And it's Laddie. Yeah. Still. So um, I think, based on what was expected of him, everybody has over estimated his abilities based on this season. Like everybody last figured, season wasn't great either. No, okay. I know, but you can say, okay, so he's young, he had, a, he had an off season. But I think the expectations wa- were he's going to hit 40 for the next 10 years. Yes. 
And, you know, pitching gets smarter. They find his flaws. They find his nicks, right? But, yeah, but real good hitters, they adapt. So we'll see. Next year is going to be a big telling well, year. Well, so two years ago, uh, 2021, 48 homers, 311 batting average, 100, uh, 111 runs batted in. This year, 21 homers, not half, batting 267. 84 RBI, but he's also got a bunch of guys to drive in. I just, I look at this and I go, did we just, ex- have we expected too much? Is it the attitude, the fun, the whole winning home run contest and all that stuff that, that hides the fact that he's not been that good? No, and it's hard to hate him because he's so much fun to watch. Yeah. Like he's always got that great big smile and he looks like he's having a ball playing baseball and he's going to get rich. A lot richer than he is now. Okay, so let me ask you that. You're, so the the top players in the game are getting twenty five, thirty, thirty five, forty million dollars a year. Would you sign him to the one of the contracts among the best players? They're one of the biggest contracts in the game. Sure, it's not my money. If you were, if it was your money, no, and you had the choice between Bichette, you got to find money for all these guys. Bichette's going to want some big money, and. You know, like, where are you putting your money? Are you going to pay, are you going to pay Vlad Guerrero based on what you've seen? Because he's got potential. We saw that in 2021, but the last two years have I not been I think I'd give it to Bichette before I give it to Vladdy right now. Today, I give, I give Bichette more. Yeah, he has to, uh, he has to step up. I mean, he's, when you hit 48, you set the bar real high. And you show the potential that you could have, which tantalizes everybody. Yeah. Two years later in the league, you're at 21 with 20 games to go. And a million hitting into double plays and just not being that effective. I just, I, I don't know how, if he if he shows up, and I don't know how many years he's got left on his contract even, but if he shows up and says next year, I want 30 million a year. Yeah. If I'm the Jays, you're in a real bad spot because w- w- who are you signing for $30 million? When are you signing he- the 48 homers or the 21 homers? When did he lose all the weight? Maybe he's better off chubby. I think that was before that w- first big year. I think it was right before that first yeah. big year. And and you don't want to say, oh, well, go put some weight on then, because then you end up with Prince Fielder, who mm-hmm. who was like his yeah. dad, but Prince Fielder's body broke down. He, his neck eventually gave out a bunch, among other things, after they had signed him to a huge contract. Yeah. With, I think it was with Texas where he br- finally broke down. Um, I like chubby guys. <laughs> I, I just, <laughs> I, I just don't know what you would do if he showed, if his agent said, we're looking for between 25 and 30, because if he's going to play like he can, you got no problem signing that amount of money. Sports is funny. If the Jays get in the playoffs yep. and he lights it up, yep. he's going to be the toast of the town again. Yep. Right? They'll say, that's the real Vladdy right there. Yep. We won't know if it is, but all you got to do is have a good playoff run. I just, the other question that I would have is, I'm always scared of giving a lot of money to young guys who have not, who may have had a good year, but haven't had a series of great years. Because you don't know if now that they've got a bunch of money, now what's they lose happen? interest or they don't, you know, now, I mean, 
I, I'm, I'm not, and that's not an insult necessarily to them. I assure you, if somebody gave me $25 million, I would find it hard to concentrate and put the same effort into what I was doing before. Cause now I got to find a way to spend 25 million bucks. And I've probably now got a $10 million home and I want to hang out in my, you know, in front of my 4,000 inch TV set and, you know, drive my Lamborghini and like all the things that got you there that you were so, I, I that to me is why, honestly, that to me is why Tiger Woods is one of the most remarkable athletes in my mind ever. Because there's a guy who at a time when he had everything, now I know he got into trouble with some stuff, but regardless, for how many years was he at the absolute top of golf with all the money and all the stuff and all the everything and still was that obsessed almost with playing the game? Wanting to be the best. Exactly. It's so easy he, to lose focus. Five years in, he he didn't need to play anymore. Right. And you're right. And, and all he did is get better, better, better. When you look at Vladdy and his age and all the potential that he had and has. still has, yeah. <clears throat> if he'd have hit 25, 35, 45, you know, 42, then you say, this is going to be very consistent. He's growing, but he's not. He's regressing. And that's a concern. It's got to be if you own the Blue Jays. And if you're the Blue Jays ownership, do you say... How do you trade them? Well, you, you, this is the problem is that you, you, maybe you're looking at it going, well, it's the batting coach. It's the hitting coach that's given him some bad information, or he's got too many people talking in his ear, or he's got too many pieces of advice, or he's one little tweak to his stroke and suddenly he'll be back to this. You, you would be terrified to trade him for fear that he goes to a team that finds that one little tweak and he's back to hitting 48 homers again and you look like a giant idiot. Or 65. You or, know. Yes. And you look like, what did we give him away for? A bag of magic beans. Yeah. And, <laughs> you know, and, and you look like the, I mean, how many of those players over the years in every sport have we seen traded who go to a new team and they figure it out and you go, why did you trade that guy? Well, he wasn't that when you traded him, but he found it. So one of the guys that had a lot of money and then came to the Jays and signed for a boatload is Springer. Mm-hmm. And he's delivering. Like, he's he's a pro. I mean, he he's pretty consistent. I don't know if he's earning all his money, but it's not like it, he got that contract and it dropped off. Right? No, he, th- there are people, there are guys, and, and I applaud them. There are guys um, who can do what Tiger Woods did who can get the money and can stay focused and stay on their game and stay engaged. I know, as I say, I, uh, for me, I would be the guy who you would not want to do that to, (laughs) because I would find it incredibly difficult. There'd be so many distractions now that I would find my way to not be putting the same effort in, I'm afraid. Sidney Crosby is a good example on hockey. Uh, LeBron James is a pretty good example. He's getting, starting to wear out, but you know, he's made Magic Johnson made a boatload of money and uh, still performed. Like the elite athletes find a way. Maybe he, maybe he just. Wayne Gretzky. Now Wayne Gretzky didn't, I mean, he made a lot of money, but he didn't make, I mean, imagine if Wayne Gretzky was around today. Or just before the salary cap. Or was playing a different sport. Like Michael Jordan, for example, Michael Jordan, you know, a lot of people say greatest basketball player ever, but if you compare Michael Jordan to the best of his contemporaries, the gap was not enormous. 
No. He was probably better, but it was, you know, you could make an argument that there's Michael Jordan and then number two is, and he's not that far. Michael Jordan's better, but number two yep. is, compared to his contemporaries, nobody was in the ballpark with Wayne Gretzky. No. There was nobody who was close. And imagine if Wayne Gretzky was a football player or a basketball player mm. or a baseball player today. And that elite and that far ahead. And that far ahead. Where yeah. it's not even, you're not even talking apples and oranges he, anymore. He apples would, and apples. You're apples and oranges. In baseball, based on the numbers, he'd make $100 million a year. I don't know if he'd make that much, but I bet you that if the top guy and like Max Scherzer and Justin Verlander, I think, are the two top highest paid guys this year and they're in the 40 million range. If Gretzky was playing today as a baseball player with the gap between him and the next guy, 50 to 60 million. I think he'd make double. He was that, I mean, the one, the one year he won the scoring championship, he had more goals. More assists. More assists than anybody else had points. Yeah. Yeah. That's pretty elite. Yep. And, you know, you win championships and you are the most uh, unbelievable dominant player. Yeah, I I don't know what he would, I don't know what a team would pay a guy like that. And especially, here's the thing, especially if he was a basketball player. Because if you're a basketball player, you can be on the floor nine-tenths of the time. Yep. Yep. So to be a guy who's that dominant as he was against his contemporaries, and now you get to not even like in hockey where you got to sit off for shifts. You can be on the floor all the time. You you could yeah. you could single handedly make your team a champion again and again and again. Like if he was in if he was a basketball player instead, he wouldn't have what do you have four championships? He'd have ten. Yep. Because he was that much better, and he would just you don't have to you don't need a lot of other players. Well, and he's like so many great athletes, and I'm sure Jordan was as good at it as anybody. Um, you make people around you better. Which he did. B- almost all the great ones do. Yep. No, he, uh, well, that, this is, we got to take a break. This is why I have always said, and I know that it's not always a popular position, that when they say who's the greatest NBA player of all time, and everyone goes, oh, it's Magic Johnson, or it's Michael Jordan, I've always said Magic Johnson. I would, if I was drafting one guy from one era ever, you're doing this imaginary, I'll yep. take anybody, I'll take Magic Johnson because when he was on the floor, every guy on the floor was an all-star because you just run the court and he will get you the ball and he made Byron Scott an all-star. He made Kurt Rambis an all-star. <laughs> he made AC Green an all-star. He made Michael Cooper an all-star. Kareem was already there. I mean, there's guys that you would have never heard of that all of a sudden are pouring in points because Magic Johnson is getting you the ball. Well, yeah, and Gretzky had some guys that... Gretzky did the same. ...scored 20 on his wing. The late Dave Semenko was a good example. 30. So... Yeah. He made other people better. That's that's exactly what I'm and saying. And the difference is you only play with two line mates in hockey. In, in basketball, you got four other guys, four other options. There were guys who played on those Lakers teams. If you if if you want to watch an interesting show, it's really worthwhile. It's on uh, Crave. It's the Winning Time. It's the story. It's a fictionalized biopic of the Lakers dynasty with Jerry Buss at the helm and Magic Johnson. It's very well done. It's definitely adult, uh, <laughs> but um, that, that but I'll watch. But there are guys that I was reminded of who played on those Lakers teams who probably shouldn't even have been in the NBA. (laughs) 
And yet when Magic Johnson is getting them the ball, it's like, well, he's suddenly pretty effective. Be- just because he was magic with it, literally magic, and his name was magic. I mean, it literally, he made everybody like that. And But I don't know. what what And, and Wayne Gretzky was miles ahead of Magic Johnson in his sport compared to yeah. Any, I, anybody else. I don't know. It would, it would be fascinating to do, to have some sort of accountant do a <laughs> breakdown of what he'd be worth as a basketball player if he was playing today when, or a baseball player today. Anyway. He'd be richer than he is now. Who wouldn't have to do gambling ads. So, uh, Don Robertson, you've been in uh, the world of sports forever. And uh, this weekend at McMaster, the McMaster Marauders played a football game against the York Lions. And McMaster won 71 to nothing, which amazingly is not even York's worst, worst loss of the year. They lost to Western 83 to nothing two weeks ago. I want to know what, the, and York has been atrocious for years now. This is not a new thing where they're just in a sudden rebuild. They have been a terrible team for years and years and years Decades. now. And it's guaranteed win night and there's no interest. I mean, the, the, there was hardly any fans of the game because everybody knew what was going to happen. Why come out and show up just to watch that? What should leagues do if there is a team or a franchise that consistently refuses to put the effort in, refuses to put the time in, refuses to put the resources in, or simply can't figure it out and stays horrible for year after year after year after year. Do you just let that franchise carry on as the whipping post? Or do you at some point say, we're going to put a time limit on you. You get this figured out or we're going to ask you to leave. I don't know. Um, You would have to think, because I follow you know, the OUA from a very high altitude. Pick whatever other league though. Pick any league. Let's the Arizona, let's say the Arizona Coyotes in the NHL were winning eight games a year, year after year, after year, after year, they're winning eight games a year. At some point, do you just say, we don't care? Well, I think it's, I think at the pro level, the commissioner calls the owner and says, clearly Radley and Robertson's 10 year contract and the average eight wins a year. You have to make a change because you're bad for ratings and you can get in trouble. I don't think it's quite that easy in the CIS. I think they have trouble with that. You would think, back to me keeping a little bit of an eye on the standings, it was easier when Marshall was here and they were winning all the time, but York has always been at the bottom. You would think the university, somebody there is going to say, I think we're wasting Half a million dollars a year, whatever it costs to run the program. Couple hundred thousand, yep. Well, you got a coaching staff and stuff like that. So, anyway, so whatever the number is, we'd be better off giving that to the United Way rather than investing it into our football team. Because collectively, we don't win. I'm sure no one goes and watches them. Nope. So, why do you have the sport? Wouldn't you think the university? The president of the university, or one of them, because there's probably been multiple, says, "We are you guys sure this is a really good idea? I don't see how it's a good idea. Well, so if the idea of sports at university, if, if there's two underlying reasons why you have a sport, one is to offer opportunities to players to come to your school and be able to play that sport. I can't imagine 
this is fun for anybody on that team to show up and lose 83 nothing or 71 nothing. I can't imagine they're having fun. And the second part is, if you're trying to raise the profile of your school and bring some some glory Image, to the yeah. school and, and make your students feel good about it. I mean, when Mac went to the Vanier Cups in 2011, 12, and 14, there was a buzz around campus about that football team. We have a chance to do something amazing here. I would say around the city. I would, it was I, a good thing. I would agree. But what about the alternative? What about the antithesis of that? If you are so bad that week after week after week you're being humiliated and your school name is being looking ridiculous, that's got to have the opposite impact. That's a joke of a school. I don't think York is a joke of a school, but that's what that no. <clears throat> sells. But that's more to my point. Um that the president of the university or the board have to take some ownership and responsibility for it. Like your 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 learn, learning institution, there has to be some check marks to make sure that we're running the right programs. And it's all a big part of a package. If you think you're going to have football, you can't be terrible at it for decades and think it's helping. And apparently after getting smacked 71 nothing, they're not getting any better. No, and, and I, I don't even know that this is necessarily a sports thing. If you have a drama program at your school... Of course. ...and the stage collapses year after year and nobody knows their lines and, you know, like every year it's a complete <clears throat> sham, or a music program, or if you, have a, if you have a lab... Imagine if you had a lab at your school and every year the lab results come out and they go to be checked by whoever checks these, you know studies and they go, what are you doing? None of this checks out. Someone would say, what, why are we running a lab here if all the research we're doing is faulty? And that's what this football team is though. And I just, I don't understand. And it's not just York. I mean, there, there are, you could, you could find this in various different leagues at all different levels yep. where there is a franchise that just consistently is horrible, horrible. And I don't know what you, I don't know if you just say, well, we'll just take the two points. You know, they show up, we're happy for the two points. Or if you say it's just not <clears> good for our league. Sometimes I look at the way soccer is run in Europe and think they may have it figured out. If you're not good enough to play in the top league, you don't play in the top league. You get bounced. And the top guy in the second league comes up. Now, oftentimes they shift back and forth fairly mm -hmm. quickly and there's a lot of money involved. But there's incentive. But there's a reason. There's a reason you don't want to be the worst because you're out. Yep. Then how do you draw? Yeah, there is definitely incentive to be better because you want to. I mean, just go watch. There's a, a show on. Uh, is it on Disney Plus right now? Welcome to or, or Wrexham. It's with it's with um, Ryan Reynolds and his buddy from It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. It's a great series. It's a great series about these two Hollywood guys who bought a fifth division Welsh professional soccer club that was in, mired in the doldrums and they put effort and money and built it up and brought attention back and the team is doing better and better. But there's, in, there's reason to, there's reason to do it. But the level is kind of like what the Dundas United used to play. I mean, it's not really Division One, as you said, five. No, but that but you can work your way up. There is incentive to get yep. better. Yep, I, I don't know what the incentive is when you're always terrible. Nothing ever changes, and nothing is ever done about it. I mean, I honestly, if I I was talking to someone else today, and I said, if I was the head of the OUA, 
if I was head of Ontario University Sports or U Sports, the Canadian University Sports, I would, I would be going to that school and say, you've got one more year. You've got one year. If you can't make yourself somewhat competitive by next year, you'll be sitting out a year, maybe two. <coughs> we cannot continue with this. It's, it's ludicrous. It makes the entire sport and the entire university sports system in this country look Bush League. So why don't, uh, and they haven't called me to figure this out for them. You brought it up tonight. Why doesn't uh, the OUA have two divisions? Not enough. Well, they could do, they could, they could. I mean, I, yeah, they could. And, but I, I don't, like, th- they would be dead last in their second division. They d- it's just, there's been no <coughs> desire. Well, maybe there's been a desire. There's been no sign that there's anything being done to really get better. But when something's broken, you try and fix it. And sometimes you have to think outside the box. I don't know this. Is there a college league? Like No. There, there's, no. Not like that. Okay, so... So there's nowhere to go below this, unless you're going to go into high school. So St. Clair College... That, there's your there's your insult. There's the way you fix it. Sorry, I just... Yeah. You, if you finish dead last in the league, you got to play the next year against high school teams. There's how you motivate someone, because the shame of your university having to go into the local high school league would be substantial. Especially if you got beat. Well, yeah, you better never lose a game. That's for darn sure. But no, you you got you got a bunch of guys who come to the school to play university ball and say next year you're playing another year of high school. That would be, we might be onto something here. Don, I don't know if you watched any, all, or just saw highlights or just heard about Canada's basketball team at the uh, at the World Cup. Uh, Canada got a bronze medal. First time they ever got a bronze medal. First time they ever got a medal. And they beat the U.S. And they beat the U.S. Yeah, and, and you know, they could have even done better than that, but, we'll, you know, a bronze medal is nothing to sneeze no. at. We'll take it, especially when you consider that they didn't have all their players there because of injuries Did the U.S. No, 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 no. I mean, this was, not, this was not the U.S.'s number one team. Canada is almost certainly not going to beat the all-star U.S. team where you've got Steph Curry and LeBron James and all those guys. But nonetheless, it doesn't matter. You, you, it's a big f- accomplishment. And the amazing thing to me is that the guy who was the best player in the tournament was from Hamilton. From Hamilton. Yeah, Shea Gilgis-Alexander who explained that because I, we can talk about the basketball part, but here's the thing that I just find so amazing is that this is a guy that didn't make his high school junior team as a kid in grade nine. Had to switch schools, Old barely made the junior team in grade 10. And then since then, went down to the States. Someone saw some potential, but wasn't even a super high prospect going to Kentucky. He was, he was just a guy that was going to come off the bench. And every year has figured something out. The light bulb, it's, it's one of those amazing stories, I think, that you look at and you go, this was not a guy who you always said was going to be a star. Connor McDavid. He's not Connor McDavid. Connor McDavid has been highlighted as a kid who's going to be a star since he was about 10. Yep. Nobody thought Shea Gilgis-Alexander was going to be that guy, and yet somehow the light bulb has gone on again and again and again. He's worked exceedingly hard. I don't dispute that for a second. But 
lots of guys work really hard and don't become great. He has something has worked. And it's amazing to me. It's an amazing story to me. Late, br- bl- late bloomer, really, yes. at, at the level you're talking about. He's a late bloomer. He just gets better and better and better. We talked about that with Vladdy earlier. You know, if you kind of work your way up to greatness, but if you walk in and have, but you're right, most of those NBA guys are fabulous high school players, yep. dominate, he would dominate the city, then the province, right? But he didn't. And at that age too, your body changes a whole lot in a hurry. Yep. <clears throat> yep. It just, it's amazing to me, it's amazing to me that someone could figure it out like this because I, I would, I would go back five years, it's probably five years since he was in university, maybe four years since he came out of Kentucky. I can't remember. I, I will pay money to someone, an expert who says he'll be one of the best players in the NBA someday. There was nobody, nobody. They, people said, oh, he might be an okay player. There, there would have been guys that said he's got a chance to play in the NBA. Yes, if everything happens right, yeah. he could be an elite he player, was like the eleventh or twelfth overall draft pick. So he, so people thought he could play. Yep. But if you knew what he was going to be, he wouldn't have been eleventh. He would have been first or second or third. Well, how much better is he than the top three? I'd have to go. I'd have to. I go don't back know the and, draft, but yeah, I'd have to go back and see who got drafted that year. Let me look it up while we're talking here. But there's a lot of people that made mistakes. Along the way, if he came at 11, right? I mean, it's um, in any league, there are guys like that, though, right? That don't go in the first or second round, whether it's ball or basketball or anything else, and they become superstars. Yeah, this is this is the draft that. The, so years ago, I don't know if you remember this, Michael Jordan did not get picked first overall. He went third overall. Michael Jordan did, but Hakeem Olajuwon went ahead of him. Not and a bad player. No, very good player. And you know what? Houston probably isn't complaining. You would have had Michael Jordan, but Hakeem Olajuwon led them to championships. You're not complaining. But Sam Bowie, Portland took Sam Bowie ahead of Michael Jordan because they wanted a center. What's Sam doing now? He 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 had in, he broke his leg like repeatedly. He had all kinds. He had brittle leg bones or something, and went down again and again and again. But here here's the draft that Shea Gilgis Alexander was in. Number one draft pick, DeAndre Ayton. By the Phoenix Suns. Uh, I don't even know who that is. Um, Marvin Bagley the third went second. Luka Doncic went third. Uh, that's a good pick. He's a great player. Yep. He's a great player. Jaron Jackson fourth. Trey Young fifth. Not bad. Mo Bamba sixth. Wendell Carter Jr. seventh. Colin Sexton eighth. Kevin Knox ninth. Michael, Michael Bridges ten. And then Shea Gilgis Alexander. You can't tell me that if you redrafted this, he would not be the second guy taken after Luka Doncic. He would be the second player taken. And again, it just, it it amazes me that somebody at this point in their life, when you're supposed, you're playing against the best players in the world, you're not supposed to get that much better in, at this point, you're supposed, we're supposed to know who you are a little bit. And he may not be done getting better. I would believe he's not. Guy used to uh, work for Glenn Sather, the uh, Oilers, Barry Frazier. Made a career out of Yari Curry and um, Paul Coffey and getting guys that everybody else didn't see something in. Like he could find guys and, you know, 
Um, there'll be people lose jobs because they didn't pick him or those scouting meetings are always interesting. You know, in retrospective analysis, it's always different, but there'll be draft tables sitting around saying, four guys saying, I told you that Radley kid was that good because they probably went to the wall for him Mm -hmm. and wanted to take him and somebody nixed it for sure out of those 10 that there was a couple teams battling for that guy. I would I would argue that every team would have had at least one guy in the room who would have said, let's take him, and got overruled because he, he wasn't that good at the time. He was good, but he wasn't that good at the time. And you have to trust that you know what you're seeing and you know what you're looking at. Anyway, I just, I found it amazing that uh, not only, I mean, I, I think we know already who's won the, Athlete of the Year award around here. I don't think there's anybody that's going to uh, going to top him right now. It's been a pretty good week, though. You got two women from Hamilton become the first two signees for the Toronto Pro Women's Hockey yeah. League team, and you got Shea Gilgis Alexander as the best player in the tournament. It's a pretty good week for around here. We'll see how that league goes. We'll talk about that next week, maybe. Yeah. We'll uh, we'll get to that. Uh, Don Robertson, thanks for doing this today. It was nice to be back. See you next Monday. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.